Heart, Pediatric Cardiology Today. My name is Dr. Robert Pass, and I'm the host of this podcast. I am Professor of Pediatrics at the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, where I am the Chief of Pediatric Cardiology. Thank you for joining us for the last episode of 2022. We are at episode 235 in the entire series. Thank you very much for joining me last week for episode 234, in which we discussed catecholaminergic polymorphic ventricular tachycardia and the optimal management. We spoke with Professor Christian Vanderwerf and Dr. Puck Peltenberg, both of the University of Amsterdam and both experts on this topic. For those of you with an interest in cardiogenetics or electrophysiology, I'd recommend you take a listen to last week's episode 234. As I say most weeks, if you'd like to get in touch with me, it's easy to remember my email. It's pdheart at gmail.com. This week, as I've done for the last couple of years, we're going to meet with Mr. Paul Merriman. Mr. Merriman, as you know, is a world-renowned expert on personal finance and investing. I'm going to introduce Paul during the segment with him. I hope everybody finds this interesting on topics of how we could consider investing money for a young child with the hope that we could improve their retirement 65 years from now. Now, This is intended for the concept of helping our children or grandchildren. I think there are lessons for all of us in investing our money in a wise, inexpensive, and prudent manner. In the interest of our lawyers, I'll remind everybody that we are not financial advisors, and you should take this only on an entertainment basis, and any decisions you make regarding money you should review with your family, trusted ones, or perhaps even with a professional. Therefore, let's go straight to the interview with Mr. Paul Merriman. I'd like to welcome to the podcast this week, once again, for the third year in a row, Mr. Paul Merriman. Some of you who are uh, consistent listeners to this PD Heart podcast, I'm sure remember Mr. Merriman, and we just could not be more pleased to have him. Of course, he's one of the world authorities on personal finance and low-cost investing. Mr. Merriman retired in 2012 from a lifetime of financial advising, and he created the successful Seattle-based Merriman Wealth Management Corporation and organization, and has since that time dedicated himself to educating investors. It's really quite remarkable, even though Paul is retired. Certainly no one has a more active retirement than Paul because his enthusiasm and vision have resulted in what seems to be to most of us more than a full-time job, uh, constantly creating new content and expanding on programs and projects. And, and he's won quite a few awards, including the American Association of Independent Investors James Clunan Award, which he won last year for Excellence in Financial uh, Education. And this is an award that's been won by some of the biggest names in all of personal finance, including Bruce Johnstone of Fidelity Investments and, of course, Jack Bogle of the Vanguard Group. And, of course, we all know uh, Mr. Bogle, one of the most important figures in the world of personal finance, perhaps in history. It is absolutely a wonderful uh, pleasure to have Paul back on the podcast. Today, we're going to discuss a new topic that he's brought up. He's talked about this for many years, but he's been focusing a little bit more in the last couple of months on a wonderful new approach or thoughts about how to potentially provide for a young child having a better retirement. 
Mr. Merriman has actually published uh, two articles online, and I'm going to put the links to these articles in the show notes. The first of these, which came out just a few weeks ago, is entitled, How $10,000 Will Help My Newborn Granddaughter Have a Better Retirement. And the other article that he wrote on the same topic is The Best Gift of All, A Financial Legacy for a Child. And there's a lot into this. And so without further ado, Paul, thank you so much for joining us this week on the podcast. Rob, it is absolutely wonderful to be back, and thank you for the very kind introduction. And listen, this is uh, this is this is really great fun for me. So, uh, uh, fire away! I'm ready. I'm ready to go to work. Well, you are very kind, Paul. I thought this uh, year we would, you know, we all know if for those of you who have maybe missed Mr. Merriman's podcast with us, I would certainly recommend that you go back in the show notes. I'll have the links to the prior visits of Mr. Merriman to our podcast. First of all, I also want to mention that Paul himself has a spectacular podcast, which I personally listen to every single week for probably five years now or more. But Paul, in the recent past, as I just mentioned, you've been talking a little bit about this idea you have, Paul is a grandfather, multiple times over, and recently, congratulations, you have a new granddaughter. And you've been talking a lot about how to fund, how to consider making an investment for your grandchild. In other words, how can you potentially help them even all the way into retirement, even though everyone listening to this podcast will likely not be here at that point. Maybe you could talk to us a little bit about your idea of uh, how you could take just $10,000 and really change your granddaughter's life. Well, this is something that in a slightly different way we've done for each one of our grandchildren. In fact, there's a question in the family whether there should be some adjustment for inflation in the amount of money we start with. <laughs> but so far, I've been able to hold it to the ten thousand. Okay. This is the first granddaughter, by the way. So this oh, is uh, this is great. really very very special. But previously, what we did was we would gift the ten thousand dollars to the grandchild. The grandchild had thirty days within which it did something with it. And if it didn't use it to go on a shopping binge or or put it away for their college, the parent or a trustee could take that check and put it into a crummy trust. And under the terms of the crummy trust, and by the way, there's nothing fancy about a crummy trust. They've been around for a very long time. It compounds, you can set it up so it compounds tax deferred. And we set it up to do that for 65 years. And only then could the child access that money. Hmm. And we could put it into a variable annuity. We found some steps to be able to do that. So the money compounded tax deferred until then. And then they were allowed to take out 5% a year for life. And when they passed, all the money went to charity. So... We could do something special for the kids, and we could do something for those after our kids. Okay. And then, by the way, the child got to choose the charity the money would go to. So it was a, uh, I thought it was a wonderful combination of, of possibilities. When this child came, when grandchild came along, I thought, well, you know, I love the idea that you can keep their hands off it for 65 years. I like that kind of control. I'm 79, so uh, I would not be around to keep but for a few years. 
And so I thought, can I take the risk of giving this $10,000 instead of going into a crummy trust, give it to my granddaughter. I'm sorry, my, my daughter and have my daughter take care of that money and invest it. And I've suggested how she should do that because the minute I give that money to her, it's hers. I have no strings attached. That's a risk I'm taking. And then to have that money compound until the granddaughter has got some earned income and then start to take the money out of that pool and put it over into a Roth IRA. So if I might just interject, Paul, so what you're saying is that basically you've given this money that you intend for your granddaughter to your child, the, the parent of the baby, and uh, you've asked them to basically open a brokerage account, a regular standard one, and uh, we're going to talk about how you've advised that the money be invested, but the plan would be then when the child is old enough to finally have earned income and therefore be eligible for a Roth IRA, uh, you would then uh, advise that the money slowly be moved um, into the Roth IRA, and you're basically giving this task to your daughter to do this in on behalf of your granddaughter. Yes, and she's plenty bright to do it. Okay. As you know, Rob, the problems in these kinds of situations do not have to do with problems of the market. They have to do with the bad habits that investors can't get into and uh, how do I how do I kind of per- keep her on course? with good habits for the next 95 years. I mean, it's an interesting challenge. Sure, sure. So I'm sorry to have interrupted. I just wanted to clarify for everybody. So so we, we're, take, we're now at a point where your granddaughter uh, maybe is a teenager and is starting to do some work, and your daughter is now going to take the money from this brokerage account and start moving it into uh, legally into a Roth IRA for your, your granddaughter. And, and you can do a, a, a Roth IRA for a minor. Uh, Fidelity makes that very easy. Fidelity also makes it very easy because you can invest with no minimum. Ah, okay. And you can invest with no commission. Okay. So when I think about the opportunities that I personally had as an investor, when I started in this industry back in the mid-60s, it is amazing how efficient investing is today. Now we just have to do the right thing in terms of of taking advantage of that efficiency. And I might mention that even working around the house, if you do this right, and I don't give tax advice, so ask your accountant what to do, but here's what I understand. As long as I'm not simply giving an allowance, an allowance doesn't count. But if I had reasons that they would earn money or things they had to do, whether it could be mowing the lawn, it could be helping around the house, that actually qualifies, can be qualified as as being paid for income that you could match and, and you could put into a Roth IRA. And, of course, Uncle Sam doesn't care whose money goes into the Roth IRA. Uncle Sam just cares that there was some actual earned income. Okay, okay. 
So uh, tell us a little bit uh, more about this uh, plan that you've uh, set up for your granddaughter. So it, it, there is no formal contract. Of course. And this, of course, is the challenge. And, and so every, there's a, a long list of things that can go wrong. As I said before, I'm not worried about the market uh, over the 65 and then 30 additional years. The, the idea, the, the studies that we've done assume that this money, this 10000 is basically invested for 65 years. Yes. And what would it become? Of course, that will be depending on how you invest it. And there's, there's all sorts of things you could do. I, of course, would be advocating for particularly for the first 40 to 45 years of being all equity. In fact, this particular group of, of, of investments, I think, could be all equity literally for the rest of their life. They could. I see. And, and I guess you're saying that because the, the actual amount of money will be so large that, he, that you might be able, to, and you're not going to be touching it for so long, that basically um, you could, you should be able to tolerate the volatility of the stock market. Well, particularly if they have a history with it. In fact, the way this is set up, I love the history it, 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 it creates. We invest it with a certain portfolio that I think teaches uh, some really great lessons to this young person when she finds out about it. Because let's say it is invested half in the S&P 500 and half in small cap value. Yes. Do I think that she would make more money all in small cap value? Of course, from everything we know about the last hundred years, she would. But what we have to be concerned about is how does she feel along the way? So let's say that we divide this between the very high quality S&P 500 and the much lower quality small cap value index, low cost. And we even uh, we, we even tell people who follow our work, as you know, what ETFs or mutual funds we recommend. But here is what she'll be able to see. Let's say she finds out about this when she's 18. Yes. She will have an actual 18-year track record, not a hypothetical. And I'm hoping it's a good 18 years because if it isn't, that's not going to be a, it's going to be a little unsettling, I suspect, for my granddaughter. Sure. But I trust the market over 18 years. In fact, uh, if you look out over that period of time, you rarely, in fact, it's always been successful. It's a question of how successful it has been. But that is the start. They now know how it worked for them for 18 years. And if you then do that for another 18 and then another 18 and then another, pretty soon you're going to learn to understand the 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 ups and the downs of the market, but that it marches forward, uh, and sometimes it's as you know, it's one step forward and two back before it's three forward. I mean, it takes patience, yes. but it is possible. It could be all equities, but let's face it: all of us come to this point. When do we have enough? When do we feel we can retire? I work and know a lot of people who were in the fire movement. These are these folks who are trying to retire when they're 35 and 40. 
Other people like myself, I don't think I'll ever retire. I don't make any money running the, the, the foundation we have, but I'm still working just like I was making money. That's what I do is I work and some people would rather play. And, uh, and so she'll have all those choices. And if, in fact, the future can look even 75% as profitable as the last 100 years, I'm talking about the compound rate of return. Yes. This $10,000 would be enough to fund the Roth IRA Virtually for the rest of her life. Now, there's always the problem of does she qualify for a, a Roth? I mean, there's there are going to be things you're going to have to consider along the way. In fact, there may be a point that the, that the, that the child does not have the ability to save in a 401k when they first come out of college. So you could use this money to make sure at least they get the match in the 401k. I mean, there's, there is some manipulation and some intelligence that should be applied to how it all gets put together. But that $10,000 investment could, in fact, and, and we in the article, you'll see this. You'll see that there's this study that shows if you got a 12% compound rate of return, and by the way, 12% is, is not an unusual long-term rate of return, for a combination of the S&P 500 and small cap value. It certainly has done that uh, over the last 94 years. Yes. We assumed an $8,000 a year contribution for the Roth IRA, only because I expect by the time that the child is 18, you'll be able to probably put away $8,000 a year. I know when I first started putting money away for my kids, it was a $1,500 IRA. So yeah. you know, these things get increased. But by retirement, that account could be certainly could be worth uh, well over, well, I'm just, just bear with me now, because we have two things going on. We got money in that account that if it continues to grow, will actually be le money left over. Yes. Uh, that never gets into the Roth IRA. Sure. That, that itself uh, could be worth $10 million. Hmm. We have the distributions over 30 years. That could be worth forty six million dollars we have the end balance for the heirs and charity charity and children that could be 31 million now i know that those kind of numbers when you throw them out very few people believe them but part of that is because they don't see just the pure magic of compounding i've been telling young people in universities who are especially engineering type of people, STEM kind of people who, who who get it with numbers in in most cases. Even they are surprised that the impact of compounding is as great as it is. So the advantage, the thing that we all wished we had, the ability to start younger. Mm -hmm. The second thing we wish that we had is the knowledge then that we have today. So we have index funds today. I didn't have those when I started. We have mutual funds that have no load to get in. We didn't have we had a few when I started in the industry in the mid 60s, but that was that was not normal. That's not what people did. We have low expenses. 
We have higher tax efficiency. We did not have a Roth IRA. In fact, when I started, we didn't even have an IRA. Yeah, yeah. And so all of these things are there for us to put to work. And the question I think that is the toughest question is how do we get that child to stay the course? I'm not worried about my daughter. Uh, my daughter is a very smart young lady and doing well in her life. And uh, so she can do this. Uh, it is my granddaughter that is my concern. And so what can we do to kind of manage her in a way that is treats her with respect and, and, uh, and encourages her to do the right thing? Because as you and I both know, Rod, when you start having, I don't care if it's just $100,000, but then it gets up to be 500000 there are people who will crawl across crushed glass to get to you to make a sale. The index annuities are out there to be sold. Cryptocurrencies out there to be sold. There's all sorts of things that are going to be placed in front of this young lady. And I don't know if I can stop that. But what we're doing to try to stop that, one, it's all about education and the dream. And, and, and so, as you know, We've shown an example. It's not quite the same letter that I've written to my granddaughter, but it's close. And that letter comes from her grandparents and what this investment is about sure. and what we want for her that really we didn't have. And, of course, I think about these young people today. What are they going to have? Pensions? No. Social Security? Some. I mean, some of what I'm getting, uh, it looks like. And, and, and also, they're trying to compete in a worldwide market I never had to compete against. Sure. So life, I think, is going to be tougher. And I'm hoping that when she understands this is something that meant so much to her grandmother and her grandfather, that that will build a wall, that and an education. So, uh, and of course, she will have a copy of my free book. Yes. We're talking millions, 12 simple ways to supercharge your retirement. I'm even going to record a podcast for her, just for her. Mm. And my wife will participate in that podcast, too, because we want to pull every string, heart string, that we possibly can, because it is that that I think is going to keep her on course and seeing the success of the investment. Paul, let me ask you a question, if I might take a step back. It's so interesting, your idea. Um, you, uh, in this, for this child, you're doing it in this manner. Um, in your prior kids, prior grandchildren, you mentioned that you used a trust mechanism. Why did you choose in this case to, what are the disadvantages of the trust that made you say, uh, I think we need to try this approach? Because Although I, I'm, I'm going to guess that you're going to tell us that the potential for return is going to be greater in this with this approach if done properly, but obviously there's a lot more uh, moving parts, I guess, to doing it this way. How did you choose with your wife to decide to do it this manner rather than uh, as a trust? Well, the reason, the main reason, is this that 
expenses mm. hurt us so much as an investor. Yes. And and we don't, there's the expense of a load. There's the expense of the operating expense. There's a, in an annuity, a variable annuity, there's additional insurance expenses in there. Then there's taxes. The beauty of this, and I struggled with this because I felt uncomfortable being un, unfair to the other three kids, but this money ends up in a Roth IRA. When the child starts taking that 5% distribution, and the first distribution could be over a half a million dollars, and that sounds like a big deal, but when you inflation adjust it, it's about $79,000. So this is not going to turn her into a, a, a filthy rich capitalist. It's really going to be a good amount, but, but, but not an amazing amount of money if inflation continues along. And all of that money will come out tax-free. When you come out of that variable annuity yes, after that 65 years, virtually all the money, not quite, but almost all the money comes out at regular tax rates. I see. So just so that I can flesh this out, Paul, um, basically what you're saying is uh, that doing it in this manner by having the ability to use a Roth for at least part of the money, uh, the tax burden on your granddaughter is going to be far less, meaning that the ultimate amount that she could potentially make from this approach should be greater uh, if it's done properly. Yep. And then uh, the other the other aspect of this is um, is uh, that I guess when your other kids, other grandchildren were younger, I'm guessing Roth IRAs didn't even exist, or that the the amount that you could put in it was substantially less, so it wasn't even as much of a consideration in the past. I'm guessing. Yes. Yeah. Yes, and 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 the the question for all of us as we move through this process. We're all in. We're all getting an education. For some, it's a good education. For some, it's not a good education. But we're still getting an education. And when we learn new things, we have a we have a portfolio of ETFs that we call best in class ETFs. Yes. So on a regular basis, every couple of years, we review all of them. And what do we do if we find one that we think is better for the long term? You know, do we stay the course to what we said, told people they should be doing two or four years ago or however long ago it was? Well, as a matter of fact, we have the same thing with, as you know, what I taught people for decades was about a 10 fund strategy. Yes. And I and, and it was John Bogle who beat me up and said, you can't do that to people who are trying to be do-it-yourself investors. The better way to do it is to do it with fewer investments. So we worked hard and we got it down to as few as two funds instead of 10 funds. Sure. So we learn and we try to get better. So I just want to mention for the audience, uh, Mr. Merriman uh, gives all this information out for free. So when he talks about his uh, best-in-class uh, ETFs, and also uh, mutual funds, you can go to his website, paulmerriman.com, and all of the information is there. And he and his uh, colleagues, who are, are all volunteer uh, working for his foundation, which is a charitable organization, uh, work on and study all the various different products that exist, 
Obviously, Mr. Merriman, as you know from the prior episodes with him, is a very, very strong advocate for index investing because it's very low cost and also because most of the return of the market comes from the asset class, not the actual picking of stocks. And I, I know we're not going to go into that today, but we know that active management is largely it's rare, it's very rare, vanishingly rare that it will beat an index. Um, but for those of you who are interested, I would certainly recommend you go to his website, paulmerriman.com, where he and his colleagues every year or two review all of the various products that exist and give us a good idea of what they believe is the best balance of uh, a good investing approach as well as cost. And um, so, Paul, I wonder if you uh, – and, and I also want to mention, for those of you who may have missed what Paul was saying before, he was trying to explain that although – the approach that we're talking about today for a, a young baby, a newborn, um, at 65 will result in what is actually a very, very large amount of money by today's standards. You know, I think if you look at some of those charts, it could be as much as $30 million when you're 65. Um, Paul's trying to explain to us that if we just assume a fairly average uh, rate of inflation of, say, 2% annually, the actual value of that money and what you can take out of it Although it will be about $500,000 a year um, at age 65, $500,000 in 65 years may only be worth about seventy-five dollars to $80,000. But I think, I think we would all agree that if there was a way that you could give a child $80,000 a year in their retirement, I think we'd all sign up for that, which is why I thought yeah. it was so wonderful that we had Paul on. Now, Paul, I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit with us about the two funds that you are recommending, um, specifically the S&P 500, uh, which I think a lot of people think of as uh, the standard indexed investing, and also small cap value. We've talked about this a little bit in the past. Maybe you could speak just for a few moments about how you came up with these two particular asset classes and um, and in what percentage are you uh, recommending that people uh, put that $10,000? And I also want to ask as a follow-up, you're not recommending rebalancing this, right? This is an initial investment, 50-50 in these two funds, and then you just kind of let it rip. Is that right? Well, to the extent that you do that during the the accumulation of the money for the IRA, as you go into the IRA, I would go back to the 50-50. I see. Okay. So there would be a kind of a rebalancing. Right. And and by the way, I should mention that that, that pool of money – that yes. is still in the mother's name. Yes, is much larger than the pool of money that's in the child's name. I see. Um, and I will tell you what I told my kids, and my son just recently said he believed every word of it, because I put money into their IRAs every year when they to to, to match what they earned up to whatever the limit was. I think up until they were about thirty years of age. Mm-hmm. And what I told them was, if I find out that you liquidated that money before I'm either dead or before you're 59 and a half, I just want to make a promise. That's the last money you're going to see from me. <laughs> and well, I really got a kick out of my son. He says, I believed it. Yeah. <laughs> so. Well, I mean, I think that uh, it's just an extraordinary gift that we're talking about here. So, Paul, how did you uh, come to these uh these two uh, asset classes uh, yes. specifically, uh, this is, and for those of you who know Mr. Merriman and have listened to his wonderful podcast, a lot of, apologize for going over this again, uh, but I think there may be some listening in the audience who may not be as familiar with uh, your work on this topic. 
Well, the, the academics have made it very clear that for the long term, if we're trying to outperform inflation and build your portfolio, you should be in equities. They also will say you should be in a massively diversified portfolio of equities. They also say you should not put all of your assets in one asset class. Now, an asset class could be like the S&P 500, a group of stocks that have a certain characteristic, and in this particular case, they're large companies. Yes. But some are growth, popular companies, that people pay very high P ratios for, uh, the Teslas of the world, et cetera. And uh, the other kind of company generally is called a value company. It's a kind of a company that, that, that investors pay much less for in time in terms of the price to earnings ratio because they don't have as an exciting story to tell and it's just not where the action is. Now, the reason they want you to have stocks, obviously, is for growth, but they want you to have growth and value because sometimes growth just isn't very good. And the S&P 500 is mostly driven by growth. And from 1970 to 1979, the S&P 500 compounded at about 5%. And from 2000 to 2009, it compounded at a negative 1% a year. That was a lower return than from 1929 to 1938 for the S&P 500. It was a disaster in the terms of an investor, particularly one who was in retirement. So what do they recommend? They recommend you diversify amongst large and small, amongst growth and value. And those portfolios of 10 different securities, they had a little bit of this and that. And by the time you were done with 10% each of all these different securities, you had a hugely, massively diversified portfolio. But the real guts, what really drove the earnings were they were all equity to begin with. But secondly, there was value for part of it. There was growth for part of it. Again, some small, some large. It turns out that that small and large and value and growth, if you just capture those four major asset classes, that you're going to get most of the money you're likely to get out of a, of a well-diversified portfolio. Yes. But it's going to be more than if you put your money into the total market index. The total market index has small cap. The total market index has value, but very, very little. So the portfolio that we build has way more small and way more value. And it turns out when you put those together, not only do you do better in those bad periods, the S&P 500 struggled, but but you make a better rate of return. Yes. And the losses, and I love this. If you looked at a half S&P 500 and half small cap value, and you looked at the accumulation of losses for all of the negative years since 1970. Yes. 
that the number of, of losses was lower with the combination than with the S&P 500 on its own, but you made an extra, about an extra 1.7%. So just, now, to, just to interject, basically what yeah. you're saying is that by um, adding what many would view as a more risky asset class, small cap value, uh, you actually lost less and made more. That's it. <laughs> because of the benefits of diversification and also the benefits of uh, having value uh, in your portfolio. I'm sorry to interrupt. I just wanted no, to No, you're absolutely that. right, Rob. And on top of that, you have years like this year, value's doing pretty well. I mean, some value funds have basically broken even this year, while the growth funds suck. And, but, but that's the way portfolios, good portfolios, are built to moderate the volatility, but to maximize. Now, sure, you can win a lottery ticket, a lottery, and make a lot of money. You can make a lot of money if you put all your money into one company and it happens to be Microsoft in 1986 and you never did one more thing. You got millions and millions of dollars. Sure. But 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 we don't know the winning lottery numbers and we don't know the companies. We do know this, Rob. Over the last since since nineteen twenty six, half of the companies, public companies, have failed. Mm-hmm. And it's the other half that have made all the money. And of the companies that have come to the public, one out of twenty five Four percent of the companies have been what really produced that famous ten percent compound rate of return that we all know about the s and p five hundred sure, and what the academics tell us this is not something that that I made up in fact, everything that I share with people is simply it's all stuff I've learned from people that are smarter than I am <laughs> but but the the academics tell us the more diversified you are the higher the probability you're going to get the rate of return you need, not necessarily what you want. Because for many people, you never have enough. Yes. But if you can figure out what enough is, and by the way, I'm sorry to blab on, but i got to make one comment that I think is the real difference between John Bogle and, and what I do. And, of course, there's a huge difference between the two of us. But the bottom line is this. We both built portfolios to try to help people be successful. Yes. We do it in a way that he actually told me he approved of. Hmm. But the reason he used his recommend, that he, he recommended what he recommended, is because it was simpler. And yes, it might not make as much money, but it would be enough that a person could retire with dignity. And he actually even wrote a book called Enough. Exactly. (laughs) My view is we should be trying to make more than enough. And the reason I say that is not because of greed or a desire to have a bigger pile of money than somebody else, but because most people's lives do not turn out to be the, 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 the have the sweet ending, the cherry on the top that they think they're going to have. 
I had no idea when I graduated from high school and got married at 19 that I was going to be married more than once. We know every time you get a divorce, you go through what you might say is a bear market. (laughs) You lose half of your holdings, okay? (laughs) But we don't plan on that. Right. And our health and our children needing help. And my view is that even though enough is great, and I wish everybody enough, I think that we should hope for the best, but prepare for the worst, which means you need to try to have more than enough, because if you do, you'll probably have a good shot at having enough. And I think about this little girl. Here at 79, there's not much left for me to do. And I honestly am not interested in just leaving her a bunch of money that she gets when she's 21 and she can then quit working. Uh, I, I really like the idea that it's something that happens over a very long period of time. She can blow it. She can do that. We can all blow it. Sure. Uh, and and uh, But uh, the people who follow our work, I'm trying to help them do the same thing. Yeah, yeah. I mean, build I portfolios. think. Go ahead. I'm sorry, Paul. No, but just build portfolios. You understand, and as you know, Rob, we show people if you if you pick any one of our portfolios, you're going to see a table that shows the return of that portfolio one year at a time since 1970, and you're going to see it as an all equity, as a 90% equity and 10% bond, all the way down to 10% in equity and 90% in bonds, so that you can see what the bad times look like. So when they come, you say, oh, yeah, that's that's part of the process. That's what I signed on for. And if you didn't sign on for it, then you need to have more fixed income in your portfolio. Yeah, and I think most of us who've uh, lived through the past year know that uh, this is an example of the pain one has to feel uh, in when you're invested in equities, of course. Um, and this isn't even as bad as it could get by any Exactly. <laughs> Thank you for saying that. Because that's what's so important. Between 1970... And, and and 2022, we have had three markets that last lost over half of their market or their value. Yes. And as you remember, we had one day, one day we lost 22%. Yeah. In 1987. Yeah. And I don't think that the future is going to be any different. Although, interestingly, I believe in that year, the market ended up for the year, didn't it? Up about 5%. Yeah, so just, again, pointing to how important it is to stay the course. And I think one of the things that I so value about the recommendations that you make, Paul, is that they're, they're good recommendations for people like the people listening to this podcast who are really, really busy with uh, their jobs and their careers, taking care of, you know, as you know, we're all pediatric and adult congenital heart specialists, so we have lots of fairly sick kids and and now a lot more adults that we're taking care of, and we're very, very busy. And so the idea that any of us would really have the time, uh, or let alone the skill, to figure out which of those uh, 500 companies is actually going to be the uh, the, the 4% that are going to generate the return is pretty un- unexpe- unlikely, I would say. And so what I love about your portfolios is that you're basically teaching us a way to get uh, to do basically better than most uh, without very much effort, really. And uh, I think well, that's... And there's, yeah. some, 
something else, Rob. There's something else without that's important. Yeah. I want to show people how to easily, easily, easily earn an extra million to five million dollars in their lifetime and for the people you're talking to it is closer to the five million and where that comes from is not having to pay an investment advisor to manage your money yeah now for a lot of people they're never going to do that because they they don't want anything to do with it but my goal is to show people how to simply put together a portfolio that they don't have to pay others. And I have noticed that their kids are thinking the same way. Yeah. And and, and that's the extra bonus for me is I might help somebody make more money because they didn't pay other people. I mean, it's no different than buying a mutual fund with a, a, a five one hundredths of one percent expense instead of a one and a half percent expense. These things are not that complex, but if we can just get you to be a do-it-yourselfer, because it is not complex. I don't think you guys, you folks, really, and 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 this could be true of you as well, Rob. Mm-hmm. Most people like you have come through a profession where it took years. And even after you finally become a doctor, you're still going to learn a ton and and still be in a learning mode to be worth what you're going to charge people eventually. So certainly engineers are this way. Uh, I look at uh, certainly at anybody in a STEM field yes. is going to have, have had to do a lot of work I had to study for about a month (laughs) in order to be able to qualify to do what I do. And there are people who learn to get into the industry without even spending that much time. And the problem is, is that you probably believe that the people who are the best in our industry have put in the same kind of effort you had to to do what you're doing. And the answer is, if you believe that, then their attempt to create the fairy tale worked. Yeah, yeah. But you shouldn't believe that because you're qualified to do it. It's just a question of whether you want to do it. And you can say, well, I can afford to pay somebody. You can. That's fine. But then you have to realize you're going to leave less to your kids and you're going to leave probably less to to charity if that's what's important to you. Yeah, I think it's also important, Paul, that one of the benefits of your approach, and of course it's based on historical data and you're always very open about not knowing the future, but I think the other important aspect of this is that all of us in medicine, whether we're nurses, nurse practitioners, physicians, perfusionists, whatever area we're in, just as you said, most of us can't really start saving a whole lot of money until we're at least 30 years old. You know, I have a nephew who uh, went into industry at age 22, and he's now 27, and he he will probably have saved as much money when he's more money by age 65 than I will just because of the power of compounding interest and the fact that he's able to put money into his retirement account since a very young age. We're not, we don't have that uh, luxury as physicians. And so 
the concepts you're talking about of trying to eke out an extra 1%, whether it's because you're not paying a, uh, a, an advisor uh, a, a big fee or because you're using a low-cost product such as the ones you recommend, um, all of these little things can make a very meaningful uh, impact on, shall we say, catching up by the time we, we do reach retirement. Would you agree with that? I, I totally do. And 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 I want to get away from thinking it's all about being heavy into equities. Not everybody can be heavy into equities. I'm just working on a podcast uh, tomorrow. I'll record it and it come out uh, come out uh, next week uh, around Christmas time. But but it's about the implication of adding ten percent or twenty percent of your uh, portfolio that would be in the S&P 500. Just put in 10 or 20% along in small cap value. Mm. And if if you were to put in from everything we know about the past, just 20% of small cap value along with the total market index or along with the S&P 500 or along with a target date fund, it is likely going to add somewhere between three quarters to one percent higher rate of return. And the difference in risk is this. When we look back at the last 52 years and we see the biggest drawdown, peak to valley, you would have lost along the way a little more than one and a half percent more at the very worst point that it was down. Yes. And, and and so in order to get that extra one time, you had to be willing to give up just a little. You wouldn't even notice the difference yeah, by the time idea. the market is down 50%. <laughs> but, but that's what I'm asking people to do is maybe it's a baby step, but that baby step, I think, is going to produce big long-term returns. And once we get started in this, it becomes easier to move from 20 to 30 or from 30 to 40. Every extra half of 1% adds, in theory, about a half of 1% to the compound rate of return. Right. And that's, that could be very important and very meaningful. Well, for those of you uh, who may, may remember, who didn't listen to or weren't, weren't able to listen to our prior podcast, Paul has been gracious enough to basically give away his most recent book entitled, We're Talking Millions, 12 Simple Ways to Supercharge Your Retirement. Many of you who listen to the podcast have reached out to me and I've sent you a PDF version of it. I assume, Paul, that you're still willing to allow me to uh, share that wonderful document with people. So uh, if anybody is interested, please do reach out to me. You all know my email is pdhart at gmail.com. I say that every week on the podcast. And if you go to Paul's website, he has a lot of wonderful books that are all free and you can download. I mean, he's basically giving away the information. And uh, I would encourage everybody who's listening to uh, go to his website and start looking over some of the material that he offers. Paul, I really can't thank you enough for joining us this week. We're just a wealth of information, and I think people are really going to enjoy this uh, information. Thank you so very much, Paul. Uh, you're welcome. Thank you, Rob. Great All pleasure. the best to you. Thank you. 
I just want to leave you with a few thoughts regarding some of the things that we've discussed and where you can find more information. In the show notes today, I'm going to link the two articles that I referenced at the start of our conversation that Paul has recently written about how to potentially fund a retirement for a child, as well as a letter he recommends giving to a child to explain what the plan was. Because, of course, if you're saving money for a grandchild, the likelihood that we'll actually be there at age 65 is fairly small. Additionally, I'm also going to leave a link to Paul's podcast in the show notes, particularly the last episode that he did this past week, which is very much on this topic, specifically the concept of mixing an S&P 500 fund with a small cap value fund and what one could expect from returns. I think it's quite illuminating. Most of you probably fully understood what Mr. Merriman was talking about, but I am aware that many people who listen to this podcast, although being extraordinarily sophisticated in their medical knowledge, are not as sophisticated in finance. And so I'm going to very, very briefly go through what Mr. Merriman was talking about in regards to how he would invest the money for his grandchild. Basically, what he said was that he would take the $10,000 and split it in half with 50% in an S&P 500, either a mutual fund or an ETF, exchange-traded fund, and then place the other half in a small-cap value fund, either an ETF or a mutual fund. Small-cap value, for those of you who may not be as familiar, means that we would be investing in smaller companies that are undervalued, meaning in theory the prices of these companies are low relative to the value of the company. Of course, some of the reason for that is that the companies are lousy, but the thought is that over long periods of time, this asset class, companies that are undervalued and small, will overperform versus the overall market, which is represented by the S&P 500. And interestingly, this fact, this expectation that small cap value will outperform the overall market has been shown time and again over 10 to 20 year periods in virtually every stock market on the world today. Therefore, for example, one could open a account in any of the major brokerages such as Vanguard or Fidelity or Charles Schwab or TD Ameritrade or any of the ones that you prefer and purchase, for example, $5,000 worth. And I'm going to just give you some examples of the Vanguard S&P VOO, which is an ETF representing the S&P 500, and then put another half of it, another $5,000 in the Avantis U.S. Small Cap Value Fund, which is AVUV. Or if you wanted to stay 100% in the um, small cap value world of Vanguard, you could do it in the VBR, which is Vanguard Small Cap Value Fund. Both of these are excellent funds. And in the links to this podcast, you will see a listing of what Mr. Merriman and his team believes are the so-called best-in-class ETFs or mutual funds. And he updates it every two to three years. But generally speaking, these are the types of investments that you really could set and then forget. Because although he sometimes changes them because he recognizes marginal differences between them, on average, pretty much all of the recommendations that he has made for the last 10 or 20 years have largely stayed in the list of things that he recommends. Although sometimes he has identified newer products that may be marginally better. And I really want to emphasize that Mr. Merriman does not sell these products. He has no personal relationship to them whatsoever. He is simply providing what he believes is the best advice in regards to the best funds that one could invest in at the present time. So basically, these are two index funds you would put your grandchild's money into, and the goal would be to just let it ride until the child was old enough to have earned income. 
At the present time in the United States, we have something called the Roth IRA, which he and I discussed previously. And in a Roth IRA, money is put in as taxable income. But then once it's in the Roth IRA, it grows without taxes. And one can remove the money at retirement age without any tax implications because one has already paid the taxes. One is only allowed to have such an account when you have actual earned income, which is why he was talking about the fact that one would have to wait until the child was old enough to have a job. So, for example, if your child at age 16 started mowing the lawn and made $1,000 a year, you would be allowed to contribute $1,000 of the money that initially was invested into the Roth IRA. And he talks about moving every year, however much you can move in, based on the income of the child. From the brokerage account that you initially set up when the child was born to the Roth account. Ultimately, because of the power of compounding interest, the brokerage account will become so large that you probably will never be able to fully move all of that money into the Roth IRA unless the limits on how much one is allowed to place in a Roth IRA were to change over time. And then basically, once you've moved it into the Roth IRA, the child can continue to do that until they make too much money and they're not allowed to have a Roth IRA. But the point is that by the time the child is 65, if you take even a conservative estimate, that money, that initial $10,000 could be worth as much as 50 or $75 million by the time the child is that old. Now, again, accounting for inflation, that $50 million may only be worth $5 million, but I think we would all agree that leaving a grandchild or a child $5 million into retirement is a very nice present and a pretty good return on an initial $10,000 investment. For those of you who found this a little bit pedantic, I'm sorry, but I think some of the people who listen to this podcast may not fully understand what he was talking about, and I just wanted to flesh it out for our audience. I once again would like to thank Mr. Merriman for turning this into a tradition of helping the listeners of this podcast get a fair shake on Wall Street and learn a little bit more about how to properly manage our money so that we can focus more on medicine and a little less on these types of topics. Well, we've come to the end of 2022, and in closing the year, I wish to congratulate all of you who spent all of 2022 helping to improve the health of our patients who have heart disease. Some of you may have previously heard me say that one of the most important motivations for me to do this podcast was to give at least a few people in our field the opportunity to shine, and for the spotlight to fall on people who dedicate so much of their lives to helping to care for people just like you and me who were unlucky enough to be born with or to develop heart disease. I firmly believe that what you all do is far more important than any other profession I can think of, and I'm sure you share my feeling of humility in being allowed to help people as we do, and share in my joy in knowing that we've made a difference. And dear listener, you certainly have made a very big difference. And so let me say to you all, bravo. I wish to particularly thank all of the many guests we've had on the podcast in the past year. I'll endeavor next year to continue this podcast as long as my stamina allows, and wish to thank you so very much for taking this journey with me through 2022. To end this year's last episode, I thought I'd pick what was my favorite musical ending of the past year, specifically the rousing aria, Oui, j'irai dans le temple, from the rarely performed Donizetti opera, Les Martyrs and we hear the ridiculously talented Michael Spears sing us into the new year by hitting a high E over high C. This is an extraordinary achievement, but in my view, no different than the many achievements each of you have made in the last year. 
I wish everyone a good new year marked by health and happiness for you, your families, and your patients. Happy 2023! Keep on.